Okay, so today I'm going to talk about Hume's logic, um, his theory of relations, and his uh, taxonomy of arguments. These will be crucial to the discussion of induction, which we will get into properly next week. Now, the heart of Hume's chief argument is in Treatise Book 1, Part 3, as I've said before. And this part is entitled Of Knowledge and Probability. When Hume says knowledge here, he means knowledge in a very strict sense, demonstrative knowledge, absolute certainty. But if you look at Book 1, Part 3, uh, with the title in mind, you might easily find it rather confusing. Uh, first of all, only the first section, and that's not very long, talks about knowledge. But secondly, even more confusing, you think, oh, well, the rest must be about probability then. And probability hardly gets a mention until well into the sixth section. Uh, it appears in the, a title of one section, but apart from that, the word probability isn't mentioned till then. So in order to understand what's going on here, uh, we need to look at Hume's theory of relations. It will turn out that Hume more or less equates probability with causal reasoning. So what he's going to do is discuss causation, uh, and that explains the fit with the title. So this is the real, the real unifying theme of Treatise 1.3. Um, right from the second section, where he introduces the idea of causation, until almost the end, he's going to be searching for the origin of the idea of causation, or in particular, necessary connection, which turns out to be the crucial element of the concept of cause. Now, the theory of relations plays a major role pretty much right from the start, um, and it becomes a theory of mental operations. That actually is a sort of unifying feature, at least of the early part of Book 1, Part 3. So what we're now going to do is look at that theory, and I'm going to explain to you what I think is really going on with it. Why does Hume take the path that he does um, here in the treatise? Well, we saw before that Hume talks about the association of ideas, and I mentioned to you that it plays quite a large role in his philosophy and contrasted that with Locke's philosophy where um, association of ideas is dismissed as a kind of madness. One of the things he says about the association of ideas is that it gives rise to complex ideas. Because certain of our, our ideas are naturally associated together, we think of them in complexes. And he divides the complex ideas into relations, modes, and substances, and then goes on in the next section to discuss relations. I think what Hume is doing here is he's trying to be systematic. He's trying to say, look, I'm, all, I'm going through the contents of the human mind in a very systematic way. We've talked about association. That leads to complex ideas. What are the types of complex ideas? Here they are. I'm now going to deal with them in turn. Um, but in fact, of these, relations is far more important than the others. So he starts 115 with a distinction between uh, natural and philosophical relations. Now he introduces this as 
simply a clarification of two different senses in which one can understand the word relation or related. My personal view is that this distinction amounts to absolutely nothing more than that. Uh, Some commentators have read a lot into this distinction, but in fact he hardly mentions it after this in the treatise. It just crops up twice at the end of the discussion of induction and just before he introduces the two definitions of cause. Uh, Because of that, because of the prominence of these two places where it's mentioned, some commentators read an awful lot into it. Um, So I'm going to give you a very deflationary account of it, uh, which I think is indeed correct. So, in one sense, we think of things as related when the idea of one of them naturally takes our thought to the other. And if they're related in that way, then that's called a natural relation. And as we've seen from his discussion of the association of ideas, Hume thinks that there are basically three types of natural relation, resemblance, contiguity, and causation. But as philosophers, we can talk about things as related in all sorts of arbitrary ways. We can talk about relation R... Uh, Let's consider the relation that holds between an oyster and an extinct volcano. If the volcano last erupted more than a million years before that the oyster was born and uh, less than 100 miles away. That's a relation. It's a very strange relation. Uh, You probably wouldn't think of it unless you were trying to cook up a random example in a philosophy lecture. But... uh, It is a relation of sorts. And when philosophers talk about relations, they include things like that. So Hume's theory of relations actually develops from Locke's. And I think if we take a look at what Locke is doing with his theory of relations and compare Hume's to his, it sheds a lot of light on what Hume is up to. So... Here's a list of relations that Locke emphasises in his chapter of the essay concerning human understanding. Now, the last category here, proportional relations, will include two different categories for Hume, degrees in quality and proportions in quantity or number. So Hume distinguishes those, but they clearly correspond to Locke's proportional relations. After having gone through those, Locke says, well, there are infinite other relations. Uh, For example, there are natural relations. Now, notice that when Locke talks about a natural relation, this is different from what Hume means. When Hume talks about a natural relation, he means a relation by which things are naturally associated in the mind. When Locke talks about natural relations, it's things like father and son, brothers, countrymen. So it looks like it's broadly blood relationships, that kind of thing. And then he talks about instituted or voluntary relations, such as general, citizen, patron and client, constable or dictator. And then he talks about various moral relations. So, what does Hume do with this? Well, First of all, I think we can see some pretty clear correspondences between Hume's theory and Locke's, even when the words are different. So Locke talks about diversity, Hume talks about contrariety. Hume has resemblance, uh, which 
Locke doesn't treat as a single type of relation. But if you look at Hume's discussion of resemblance, he says this enters into every relation. He doesn't actually explain how that's supposed to happen. Now, Locke says similar things about agreement. Locke talks about agreement or disagreement of ideas. And it seems to me that Hume's resemblance here is playing a rather similar role to Locke's agreement. If you find that a bit confusing, I'm not surprised. I would just suggest go and look at the texts and you'll see that they are using these as a sort of catch-all. Things that fall into any kind of relation are said by Hume to agree, um, and they're said, uh, sorry, to, to resemble, they're said by Locke to agree. Now, as we saw, Locke recognizes lots and lots of different forms of resemblance, like countrymen and so forth. But I think Hume deliberately takes Locke's categories of natural, instituted, and moral relations and subsumes them under cause and effect. Now, this has long been a bit of a puzzle. Uh, Norman Kemp Smith, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, famously pointed to this and said, look, this is evidence that Hume's real interest is in moral philosophy. So Kemp Smith had the theory that Hume had actually written book three of the treatise before he wrote books one and two. Seems a little implausible given that he published it nearly two years later. But anyway, that was the claim. And Kemp Smith gave us evidence that when Hume gives examples of things uh, connected by the relation of cause and effect, he gives moral examples or things that are relevant to morals. But I'm suggesting, think of it a bit differently. Remember, Locke's category of relations includes a whole load of what he calls natural relations, blood relations, and instituted relations. And here we have Hume saying... All the relations of blood depend upon cause and effect. The relation of cause and effect we may observe to be the source of all the relations of interest and duty by which men influence each other in society and are placed in the ties of government and subordination. So it seems to me that what Hume is doing, he's saying, look, Locke gave this huge categorization. First of all, I'm going to treat all kinds of resemblance as just resemblance. And secondly, the Um, blood relations, instituted relations, moral relations, they're all going to count as causation. Now, if I'm right about that, then we get this correspondence between Locke's theory of relations and Hume's. And I think it's so close that it's just completely unlikely that it's any sort of coincidence. Locke is clearly the dominant influence in British philosophy uh, when Hume is uh, writing the treatise and beforehand. And here he is giving a theory of relations right at the beginning of his discussion, um, which is very, very close to Locke's. Now, why does Hume want to do this? Why is he bothered about the theory of relations, and why, in particular, is he bothered to change Locke's theory? Well, he has a motive, which we'll see. Uh, But the motive doesn't become apparent until the beginning of Book 1, Part 3. That, remember, is where he's going to introduce the discussion of causation. And causation is going to turn turn out to be the most crucial relation of the lot. So in 1.3.1, Hume comes back to the theory of relations that he's introduced in 1.1.5, and he divides the relations up into two categories. 
So you get four constant relations, three inconstant relations. So there are some relations that depend entirely on the ideas which we compare together. Resemblance, contrariety, degrees in quality, proportions in quantity or number. But there are some other relations that may be changed without any change in the ideas. Identity, relations of time and place, cause and effect. Now, he argues, to my mind, rather simplistically, that these, this twofold dis, uh, dichotomy can be divided again, and that when it's divided in that way, the relations all line up neatly with certain mental operations. Uh, so resemblance, contrariety, degrees in quality are discoverable at first sight. So, think of two things. They either resemble or they don't, and you can just see that. And that's a constant relation, because the relation can't change as long as the things remain the same. They either resemble or they don't. Contrariety, degrees in quality, the same is supposed to hold. Proportions of quantity or number, that's more complicated. Mathematical relationships, which is what we're talking about here, sometimes require great calculation in order to discern them. Identity and relations of time and place are matters of perception rather than reasoning. Uh, you can see whether one thing is identical with another. Hang on a minute. Can you? That's not so clear, is it? Because normally identity, the question of identity arises actually when it's not at all obvious that things are the same. You want to know whether this person in front of you now is the same person that you were talking, to the talking on the, the phone to uh, a few days ago. Or you want to know whether that light in the sky is the same object as the light in the sky you saw last year, or whatever. So this is really rather implausible. Causation is the only relation that can be traced beyond our senses to existences and objects which we do not see or feel. That's really the crucial claim that Hume wants to make. He wants to make the claim that all our reasoning beyond what we perceive depends on causation. That's actually quite a plausible claim. I don't think he makes it any more plausible by placing it within this rather um, artificial structure. But anyway, there's the structure. You've got constant relations, inconstant relations. You've got perception and reasoning, and you've got seven relations filling the gaps. Now, I think really Hume was a bit carried away here. He had this nice idea that you could find interesting conclusions by analysing the relations involved, he saw a superficial match-up and went for it. Oh, he's a young man. Right? He published the treatise when he was, um, he was still only 28. So he was you know, working on this some years before. Uh, it can be very uh, attractive when you see some neat theory coming to, to, to shape in front of you. And I think he just went for it rather too enthusiastically. But he had a real motive. Here's the motive. What Hume wanted to say was that based on his theory of relations, he could absolutely rule out certain things being demonstrable, being provable by logic. The causal maxim, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. He wanted to say, because that, that involves the relation of causation, and causation is an inconstant relation, all right, you can have... You can think of two different things, but your ideas of those things in no way tell you whether one is a cause of the other or not. 
It might be or it might not be. That wouldn't necessarily change the ideas. So the relation of causation can change without any change in the ideas. It's an inconstant relation. Therefore, you cannot demonstrate anything about it. That's what he wanted to say. Sounds quite plausible. He also wanted to say that relations of vice and virtue are not demonstrable. And these are the two places, the only two places in the treatise, where he refers back to his dichotomy and uses it. He's using it to provide a criterion of what can be known intuitively or demonstratively, what can be proved with absolute certainty. And he seems to be arguing from something like that principle. He never states the principle. You have to infer it by what he says. But take a look at these texts, together with the beginning of 131, where he draws the dichotomy, uh, and see for yourselves. It seems to me that he's arguing from the principle that any proposition that's intuitively or demonstratively certain can contain only constant relations. Again, it seems quite plausible. But unfortunately, it's nonsense. Uh, for example, if a, a equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Do you agree that's intuitively true? Yeah, self-evident, but it involves the relation of identity. What about anything that lies inside a small building lies inside a building? Do you agree? Yeah, intuitively true, but it involves the relation of contiguity. Uh, or relation of, relations of time and space. <coughs> Every mother is a parent. Yeah, intuitively true. It involves blood relations, which, as we know, are relations of causation. What about anyone whose paternal grandparents have two sons has an uncle? That's not perhaps intuitively true, but it's demonstrably true. A little bit of reasoning will get you there. But again, that involves blood relations, which are causal. So basically, Hume's dichotomy, or at least what he's using it for, is nonsense. Seductive nonsense, but nonsense nevertheless. The reason it's seductive, I think, is that Hume is confusing two things. Um, the best discussion on this currently in the literature is by Jonathan Bennett, uh, his well-known uh, work, Locke, Barclay, Hume, Central Themes from 1971, and Learning from Six Philosophers. Uh, he comes up with what I think is essentially a correct diagnosis, um, that Hume is confusing two different concepts. One of them is supervenience and one of them is analyticity. So a relation between two objects is supervenient if, given the qualities of the objects, the relation either follows or doesn't. Right? It, it either, it, it's either necessarily there or not there, depending on the properties of the objects themselves. Whereas analyticity... Um, a relation holds analytically if, given the way that you describe the objects, it follows as a matter of logic that the relation holds. Now, it's very easy to confuse those two, particularly if, like Hume, when you're writing about these things, you're tending to confuse objects and ideas of objects. You'll see when he talks about relations, if you go and read chapter 115, where, where he's talking about relations... Sometimes he talks about them as holding between ideas and sometimes between objects. And you'd think that's pretty harmless. Yes, it is pretty harmless, except if it leads you to go wrong in this way. So I think Hume, that's why Hume makes this error. 
Now, the error isn't actually that damaging to Hume's philosophy, uh, because most of the time when he wants a criterion of what is demonstrably provable or not, he doesn't rely on the dichotomy, he relies on the conceivability principle. It is an established maxim in metaphysics that whatever the mind clearly conceives includes the idea of possible existence, or in other words, that nothing we imagine is absolutely impossible. Normally he uses some um, word like clear or distinct. Uh, it's not just any old imagination that, that shows something to be possible, but if you can clearly and distinctly imagine something, clearly and distinctly conceive it, for Hume that is evidence, very strong evidence, that it is in fact possible. To form a clear idea of anything is an undeniable argument for its poss possibility and is alone a refutation of any pretended demonstration against it. Whatever we conceive is possible, at least in a metaphysical sense, but wherever a demonstration takes place, the contrary is impossible and implies a contradiction. Notice, by the way, he's talking about logical possibility here, uh, and that carries with it implications of logical necessity. Distinguish that entirely from causal possibility and causal necessity. Hume is going to go on to say a lot about causal necessity in the, the rest of Book 1, Part 3. Lots and lots. Don't get confused about that. That is not the same as logical necessity, and Hume is pretty clear in distinguishing them. Most of the time, in fact, when he's talking about logical modality, he's talking about possibility, as here. When he talks about necessity, most of the time, actually, he's talking about causal necessity, not logical. Okay, so this is a far more satisfactory criterion than the one based on the dichotomy. You know, saying you can't demonstrate anything that includes inconstant relations. We saw that's just wrong. Whereas the conceivability principle is actually so plausible that lots and lots of philosophers have gone along with it. Uh, it is controversial, but it wasn't controversial in Hume's time. And even today, there are many, many philosophers who think that clear and distinct con distinctly conceiving of something is the best proof you can have that something is possible. At least, in gen best general proof you can have that's very widely applicable. After all, if you can clearly absolutely distinctly conceive of something being the case, then logically it must be a possibility, yes? Seems very plausible. Now, in the inquiry concerning human understanding, so this is 1748, um, that's nine years after the first two books of the treatise, Hume gets rid of the dichotomy entirely and replaces it with a distinction between kinds of proposition. Uh, relations of ideas and matters of fact. So relations of ideas are propositions that can be known by pure reason, just by thinking about the ideas involved. They don't depend on experience, they don't depend on what happens to exist. Uh, their falsehood is inconceivable. You cannot con clearly conceive the opposite of a relation of ideas. I mean, three times five equals half of 30, for example. Try conceiving what it would be for that to be false. Um, a modern example, all bachelors are unmarried, where a bachelor is understood by definition to be an unmarried man. Okay, you, there's no way you can clearly conceive of that being false. Pythagoras' theorem, well, you can imagine Pythagoras' theorem being false in a way, can't you? You can draw a triangle and you can think, well, I wonder 
if the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the squares of the other two sides, maybe it's not. You can imagine it in that way, uh, but Hume would say you can't clearly and distinctly conceive it uh, because you can't actually work through its implications. And there are a whole lot of problems that one can raise here, but uh, that is an example that Hume gives, Pythagoras' theorem. Now, I think the nearest modern term to what Hume means by a relation of ideas is something like an analytic proposition. But the word analytic, be warned, is understood in different ways. Uh, Kant had one understanding of it, Frege had another. Um, but the, the, the kind of way it was understood by Ayer and other uh, logical positivists, true in virtue of its meaning. If a proposition is true in virtue of its meaning, then that's roughly what Hume means by a relation of ideas. Those, that's contrasted with matters of fact. Matters of fact are, as the name implies, things that could be true, could be false. The sun will rise tomorrow. That's a matter of fact. The sun will not rise tomorrow. That's also a matter of fact. Notice that a matter of fact doesn't have to be true. When you say something's a matter of fact in this sense, you're not saying it's a true matter of fact. You're saying it's a question of fact whether it is true or not. So I hold my pen up. This pen will fall when released in air. That's a matter of fact. You cannot know it to be true simply from the meanings of the words involved. In fact, it was true. Closest modern term to this is synthetic, which is the standard opposite of analytic. But notice that for Hume, the analytic-synthetic distinction, the a priori, a posteriori distinction, and the necessary contingent distinction, they all line up, just as they did for Ayer and uh, other heirs of Hume. So, just to sum up what I've said... It's important to know about Hume's theory of relations when you read those early, uh, early parts of the treatise, because otherwise you can be really confused. You won't know what's going on. Once you see what he's trying to do, you can go over them pretty quickly and say, oh yeah, okay, here he's trying to set up a criterion of demonstrability. Fine, it doesn't work, but we know what he's trying to do. In his later philosophy, he has another criterion of demonstrability, which is much better. And, and because it lines up so closely with what he was trying to do in the treatise, you can actually understand all those arguments just as well without worrying too much about the details of the theory of relations. Uh, some recent scholars like David Owen and Helen Beebe have actually put quite a lot of work into trying to uh, give an account of what Hume means by his logical concepts that takes the theory of relations very seriously. Uh, I'm simply going to give you my view, they're wrong, and it shouldn't be taken that seriously. It's much, much simpler if we take Hume's concepts to line up pretty closely with those that we use today, um, as I shall now go on to show in the case of arguments. Okay, uh, a, a nice passage to put in here is from Hume's letter from a gentleman to his friend in Edinburgh. Uh, this was written in 1745... It was written in response to a pamphlet that had come out saying Hume definitely should not be appointed to the new chair at Edinburgh uh, because he's written this book, Treatise of Human Nature, which is full of infidel rubbish. This pamphlet got to Hume. Uh, he was out in the countryside actually acting as a tutor to a mad Marquis, uh, earning a bit of money. And he wrote a response to it, which he sent back to Edinburgh. Um, and 
Henry Hume, his kinsman, who we've met before in the first lecture, put it together into a, into a pamphlet which we now know as the Letter from a Gentleman. The interesting thing about this, particularly interesting, is that Hume, when he wrote it, did not have the treatise to hand. So he was facing these accusations about the treatise where the author of this pamphlet had accused him of downright atheism and such like and was quoting page numbers. And Hume, in this letter, he says, you'll have to forgive me for not being able to quote page numbers. I don't actually have the treatise with me in the country. So what's quite nice is that in this letter, Hume is writing some things in a kind of general or um, less formal way, saying what he said in the treatise, when in fact some of what he writes in the letter is nowhere in the treatise. Uh, for example, in the treatise, Hume leaves the impression somewhat that the causal maxim might not be true, the maxim that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Uh, whereas in this letter, he makes clear that he, he had wanted to say, no, no, it's true all right, but we know it by experience, not by demonstrative proof. And here's another example. It is common for philosophers to distinguish the kinds of evidence into intuitive, demonstrative, sensible, and moral. Okay, so for Hume, as for Locke, intuition, something is intuitive if it's self-evident. When he talks about sensible evidence, he, he doesn't mean sensible in the modern sense, he means sensory evidence from the senses. And you can see there are two forms of reasoning there, demonstrative reasoning and moral reasoning. Uh, the word moral in this context does not mean ethical. Uh, he's talking about uh, probable reasoning, which we will come to now. So Hume is presupposing a Lockean distinction, which was indeed taken for granted by almost everybody. Um, you have a distinction between demonstrative reasoning and probable reasoning. And demonstrative reasoning is most typified by mathematics. So imagine you've got a premise, and you've got a, a conclusion you want to reach, and you go from the premise through a number of intermediate steps until you eventually get to the conclusion. And the links that take you from the premise to the first intermediate stage, and then to the next, and then to the next, and then to the next, all those links have to be intuitively certain. So logically, completely watertight, completely obvious. So in a good mathematical proof, the link between each of the adjacent steps should be absolutely manifest. But of course, when you put them together, you can go quite a long way from your premise to a conclusion. You can have a very unobvious uh, relationship there. So that's what a demonstrative argument is. It's an argument consisting of intuitive links. Now, Locke says, what about a probable argument? I mean, think of a probable argument as being any everyday argument in which we draw a conclusion that is not absolutely logically watertight. And we do those all the time, right? You know, oh, that's the time. The train will nearly be in then. Or, you know, I'm going to let go of this pen so it will fall. Anything where we draw a conclusion beyond our immediate perception or our memory is going to require some argument of this kind. We commonly call them inductive arguments nowadays. I don't terribly like the word because I think it carries a lot of baggage. But at any rate, it's a very common one, so let's go with it. Uh, be, be warned that when Hume talks about 
um, these types of argument, he sometimes uses his own terms. In the inquiry, he calls demonstration reasoning concerning relations of ideas. He calls probable reasoning reasoning concerning matter of fact, or sometimes reason concerning matter of fact and existence. So I shall sometimes refer to it as factual reasoning, just as a shorthand. He also calls it, as we've seen, moral reasoning. Okay, so this raises a question. Reasoning concerning matter of fact. That is Hume's favourite long-term way of referring to what Locke calls probable reasoning. So take an argument like this. Mars is red and round, therefore some round thing is coloured. Do you agree that follows logically? Yep. Do you agree also that the premise is a matter of fact? Mars is red and round. Actually true, could easily not have been true. If something awful happens to Mars, it might cease to be true. Uh, Some round thing is coloured. That's also a matter of fact. So you might naturally think, given that Hume talks about probable reasoning, he equates it with reasoning concerning matter of fact, you might think that when Hume talks about this kind of reasoning, it would include that sort of thing. And I want to prove to you that it doesn't. Um, First of all, is the inference merely probable? No. It follows with absolute certainty from premise to conclusion. Uh, Does it involve anything beyond relations of ideas? No. It's a simple relation between the ideas involved. Does justifying the inference require any appeal to experience or to causal relations? No. And Hume, as we'll see, will be saying that all probable argument depends on causal relations. So Hume would have to count this as a demonstrative argument. So don't be confused. When Hume talks about reasoning concerning matter of fact, he does not mean any argument that involves a matter of fact is therefore just counted as probable. On the contrary. So deductive arguments like that one, uh, deductively valid. Incidentally, when I use deductive in relation to Hume... I always, always mean deductive in an informal sense, all right? Forget your formal logic here. Deductive means such that it's not possible for the premises to be true and the conclusion false, okay? It's nothing to do with formal validity in the senses of P's and Q's and that kind of stuff. Hume was ab- absolutely had no patience with formal logic, which he equated with Aristotelian formal logic and thought it completely barren and useless, Okay, but that understood then, arguments that are deductive in the informal sense, I am claiming are demonstrative for Hume. But it is controversial because he says things like this, no matter of fact is capable of being demonstrated. Oh, but what about that example I've just given about some round thing being coloured? Didn't I just claim that that was a demonstrative argument? So Hume seems to be contradicting what I'm saying here. It seems to me that the only objects of the abstract sciences or of demonstration are quantity and number. Well, that must refute what you've just said, Millikan, because you've claimed to give a demonstrative argument with a conclusion that doesn't involve mathematics. So people have to... It's been very influentially... David Stove 
back in 1973 or whatever, made this argument, and it's been very influential. Um, both Owen and Beebe appeal to this sort of thing, to say that when Hume talks about a demonstrative argument, he can't just mean a deductive argument. He, they must, he must mean a, a deductive argument from a priori premises, which would rule out the Mars and roundness argument. So I'm going to show how I think these passages can very easily be explained. Okay, so I'm going to demonstrate that all crows are black. Right? Ridiculous, you say. It might be that all crows are black. It might be, but, but it's not the sort of thing that you could possibly demonstrate. Besides which, there might be albino crows. Nevertheless, I'm going to demonstrate it. Here's my demonstration. All crows are birds. True. All birds are black. Therefore, all crows are black. I have hereby demonstrated that all crows are black. Have I? No, of course I haven't. I've given a demonstrative argument, but I haven't, given a, I haven't demonstrated the conclusion. So we very naturally draw a distinction, right, between a demonstration in the sense of a demonstrative argument and a demonstration of a proposition. A demonstration of a proposition has to demonstrate it in a stronger sense. It's no good having a demonstrative argument with ludicrous premises like that second one. That's not going to count as a demonstration of the conclusion. You only demonstrate a conclusion if you have a demonstrative argument with certain premises. So, to demonstrate Q from P is not the same as demonstrating Q. Now, when Hume denies that any matter of fact can be demonstrated, he's meaning it in that stronger sense. He nowhere denies that one matter of fact can be demonstrated from another. Admittedly, he never says outright, oh yes, a, one matter of fact can be demonstrated from another, unfortunately. Uh, Hume was not particularly pernickety about you know, specifying all the details of his theory. He didn't show the kind of um, care and precision and perfectionism that you might expect in a modern logician, which is a great shame. You know, one would love to be able to ask Hume, tell me, Hume, does the argument P therefore P count as a demonstration for you? P therefore P? Well, God exists, therefore God exists. I'm pretty sure what Hume would say if he was asked that question. He would just say, that's a ridiculous, piffling argument. I'm not even going to address it. But, of course, if you're trying to get a theory of Humean deduction, or demonstration, rather, what, what would count as it, um, you do end up asking that kind of question. Now, let me move on. I'll come back to that uh, in a moment. But I want to address these questions quotations where Hume seems to say that only mathematics or only mathematical propositions can be demonstrated. Now, the point here is that Hume gives some further explanation of this. He doesn't just say the only reason that mathematical propositions can be, can, can be um, the subject of demonstration or involved in demonstrative argument is that only in mathematics can you have a priori premises. He doesn't say that. He says, 
you can have interesting demonstrations, demonstrative arguments in mathematics because the ideas are sufficiently clear and precise for them to have all sorts of intricate relations. I mean, imagine trying to build a machine with gears. Right? So you've got lots of gear wheels and axles and so on, and you're linking these all together. Because the gears are all intermeshing, you can build quite a complicated machine. But if the gears were all corroded, and they were all, you know, the, the, the edges were all rather vague, and they didn't interact clear, cleanly, then you probably couldn't get as complicated or interesting a machine going. And Hume's saying much the same with regard to our ideas. Because mathematical ideas are clearly articulated, you can have complex arguments in mathematics of a complexity that you couldn't have elsewhere. Okay, the crucial test case has to be applied mathematics. Right? The crucial test, can you have a demonstrative argument, a mathematical argument, which does not have a priori premises? The question has to be, does Hume recognize applied mathematics? Yes, he does. It is a law of motion discovered by experience that the moment or force of any body in motion is in the compound ratio or proportion of its solid contents and its velocity. Right, read that as momentum equals mass times velocity. And consequently, that a small force may remove the greatest obstacle if by any contrivance we can increase the velocity of that force so as to make it an overmatch for its antagonist. Now, I take this to be an example of what Hume is saying. Momentum is mass times velocity. We know that momentum is conserved. In any collision, the total momentum of the colliding bodies is conserved. So imagine that you've got a mass of 2 kilograms whizzing along at 25,000 meters per second in one direction, uh, and you've got a mass of 10,000 kilograms get moving at 4 meters per second in the other. Momentum over here, 2 times 25,000 gives you 50,000. Here, 4 times 10,000 gives you 40,000. So the overall momentum is going to be in that direction. So afterwards, this big object, which was moving in that direction, is now moving in this direction. I think that's a clear illustration of the sort of thing that Hume is talking about. Geometry, Hume says, assists us in the application of this law. That's the conservation of momentum. But still, the discovery of the law itself is owing to merely to experience, and all the abstract reasonings in the world could never lead us one step towards the knowledge of it. So it seems to me absolutely clear. I mean, Hume commonly equates abstract reasonings with demonstrative reasonings. Hume is saying you can have demonstrative arguments, mathematical arguments, that use contingent principles, principles that we discover from experience. No problem. They still count as demonstrative arguments. Here's a passage from the treatise. Mathematics, indeed, are useful in all mechanical operations, but it is not of themselves that they have any influence. Abstract or demonstrative reasoning never influences any of our actions, but only as it directs our judgment concerning causes and effects. Well, abstract or demonstrative reasoning can only direct your judgment concerning causes and effects if you're able to get some empirical uh, premises regarding causes and effects. So, simplest way of understanding Hume is actually the correct one. Uh, some historians of philosophy love to find exotic differences in 
old philosophers, and, you know, in order to understand them properly, you've got to think yourself into a different thought world. With Hume on this, I don't think that's true. And I think people like the logical positivists who claimed inspiration from Hume, in this respect at least, they were actually right that Hume was anticipating the modern distinction between deductive and inductive reasoning in the informal sense. Okay, now, in next week's lecture, we'll be going on to induction. And in order to prepare for that, I just want to end by highlighting the major difference between Locke and Hume on induction. So we can see, against the background we've had so far, why Hume might have been particularly interested and why his result about induction might be particularly important. So we've seen, Hume basically follows Locke in drawing a distinction between demonstrative and probable reasoning. But Locke sees the operation of reasoning as involving perception of evidential connections. Whereas Hume, at least in the case of induction, is going to deny that. Now, there's an interesting passage in the draft B of Locke's essay. So this is, what, 19 years before the essay was actually published, but we have a draft of it. So this is Locke's early thinking about demonstration. And I think it's, it, it's a very, very fascinating passage, because when you think of demonstrative argument, it's very natural to think of it as the sort of essence of reasoning. I mean, what absolutely um, is the paradigm of reasoning? Well, surely mathematical reasoning, isn't it? If you're thinking of something, you know, you want to say, well, there's a really interesting, high-quality piece of reasoning, you would probably think of something in mathematics, uh, certainly on the high-quality at any rate. Now, what Locke is saying here is that the word demonstration, so far from being naturally connected with something very intricate, is actually to do with sight, to demonstrate something is to show it. Here, let me demonstrate. And I demonstrate whatever it is. I show to your eyes what it is that I want you to see. And now, here, Locke is saying that that's why we call demonstrative argument demonstrative. We look for no greater certainty than what our eyes can afford us. The whole evidence of this assurance being no more than what the word demonstration doth naturally import, which is to show anything as it is and make it be perceived so that in truth what we come to know this way is not by proof, but intuition. All the proof that is used in this way of knowledge being nothing else but showing men how they shall see right without using arguments to persuade them that they are so. So according to Locke, what you do in a demonstrative argument you get people to see how their ideas fit together so they can just see the truth of the proposition. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Notice the huge difference, incidentally, with, with somebody like Descartes. Uh, Locke wants to say the fundamental, most certain bit thing that we have is what we see. Very empiricist. It's not truth coming from pure uh, thought. Now look at Hume on reasoning in general. Inference consists in nothing but the perception of the connection there is between the ideas in each step of the deduction 
whereby the mind comes to see either the certain agreement, that should say, or disagreement of any two ideas, as in demonstration in which it arrives at knowledge. So let's deal with that first. Remember what I said, a demonstration consists of premise, conclusion, and the steps have to be absolutely visible and certain. That's what he's saying there. Or the probable connection of the ideas on which it gives or withholds its assent as in opinion. So he's saying that in a probable argument, there isn't an absolute certain connection, there's a probable connection. For as reason perceives the necessary and indubitable connection of all the ideas or proofs one to to another in each step of any demonstration that produces knowledge, right? so in a deductive argument, the connections are absolutely necessary and indubitable, you can't doubt them, so reason likewise perceives the probable connection of all the ideas or proofs one to another in every step of a discourse to which it will think assent due. So he's drawing a distinction between demonstrative and probable argument and notice what he's saying. In a demonstrative argument, you perceive the links between the, in the argument and you see that they're all you know, visible, clear, immutable, certain. In a probable argument, you see the links as well but they're probable links. Now look at Hume. Thus all probable reasoning is nothing but a species of sensation. Tis not solely in poetry and music we must follow our taste and sentiment, but likewise in philosophy. When I'm convinced of any principle, tis only an idea which strikes more strongly upon me. When I give the preference to one set of arguments above another, I do nothing but decide from my feeling concerning the superiority of their influence. Now, He's overblowing it a little bit there. But the point Hume is making is that actually, in a probable argument, where Locke is claiming that you perceive probable connections and that's why you make the inference, Hume is saying that doesn't happen at all. No, it's more like feeling. Does that mean he's an irrationalist about induction? Well, for that, you'll have to wait till next week. See you then.